Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-GM? I guess it's GM. I'm Miguel. You're you're both player and GM these days. That's right, doing these solo RPGs, so uh, so I guess I am just, I don't know, a role player? And I might... <laughs> that's what I am? I myself did what play one of these solo rpgs you, the one you've been talking about notorious that's right um before we get into all that though this is uh episode 167 recorded on tw- the 25th of october 2023 um yeah i mean so uh, i guess on your side we're still talking solo rpgs yeah, that's right. Uh, I'll talk a bit more about Notorious because I've continued playing it and I want to hear about your experiences playing Notorious. But uh, I'm also going to talk about a solo RPG that I mentioned on our last episode called Bucket of Bolts, which is uh, an, like a, I, I hesitate to even call it an RPG. It's sort of like a, a solo mini game that you can play that generates the a, a spaceship and its history. Um and I'll I'll get more into that. And then I, I used Bucket of Bolts as a supplement for Notorious so that my space bounty hunter, my nomad, could get himself a ship. Hell yeah. I mean, Notorious, you just like you start with a ship, but you got to really make your ship. You really uh or or I guess I can I I like designed my ship from the ground up. But uh, I kind of fudge, like, Notorious, I, I guess, technically, your guy, your nomad yeah, starts I, with a ship. Yeah, I just considered, like, oh, you probably just, like, redid the story so that you just started on the planet without a ship. Yeah, exactly. He, he, he started on his own homeworld where he'd been doing contracts. And then uh, I mentioned, I think I got to the, yeah, I did get to the point where uh, I had a showdown with my target, Mako Suds. But I lost, and the last thing that happened was uh, Mako left me for dead on a launch pad as I watched his ship fly away. And I thought to myself, I gotta get a ship so I can pursue him. So that's that's what I'm doing next, is I'm telling the story of the ship that the nomad Nas Grask came to own. Yeah. Um, as for my side of the podcast, I am just covering as i've been the adventures of the party in coyotes ages as they prepare for the grand assault the battle of Ashgrain outpost where they will be uh fighting to liberate this uh terrible industrial uh slave work pit uh settlement um Full of smoke belching factories and whatnot, uh, and guarded by we've we've learned and and largely manned by Azers and uh, fire giants and hellhounds. A lot of a lot of fire, a lot of a lot of fire and brimstone uh, facing the players as they scout ahead of the main uh, force to sort of let them know what what to expect when they launch the big assault. 
Is this going to be more combat? Or are we out of combat? Uh, we are right smack dab in the middle of combat because where we Heck left yeah. off, uh, Hex was surrounded by Azur. Um, he had gone towards what looked like just a few Azur, and uh, then out of the huts came quite quite a few Azur who then That's surrounded right. Hex. <laughs> and now Connor and Gent are in... Well, Connor and Gent were in sort of a sniper, like, overwatch position. But when they saw Hex get surrounded, Connor moved up because, you know, he's the healer. He's got to cover his buddy. Well, let's, do we want to start there or do we want to head over to the danger room first? Uh, let, let's start there. Let's, uh, let's go with the old formulae and, uh... So so Hex is surrounded by Azur. Um he starts blasting. He he takes his uh Apollo laser pistol, which is this kind of his signature weapon, and just starts blasting all the Azur all around him. Um normally you have a uh you know disadvantage to do a ranged attack in melee like this. But Hex, of course, at some point uh, invested in a feat that, like, we probably went with, like, an equivalent of crossbow expert, but then, like, allowed it to uh, apply to firearms. I think that's the one that allows you to fire in melee without disadvantage. Whatever the case, it's like, you know, he paid a feat for it. Uh, you know, because we know... We know 5v well enough at this point that we can sort of customize things like that. Um, he's blasting at these. There, He blasts at one of these Azur, grazes the side of his head, causing fire to flare from where his ear would be. Then the second shot blasts a hole through the center of his chest, clear through his back. His laser perforated plate armor falls to the ground in a pile of ashes. Um... The next one he aims at swipes at Hex with his Wakazashi, but Hex gets him in the sword hand. And then Hex rages. Now, I know we had covered at some point, it's like Hex began to multi-class into Fighter Barbarian. And Right. But once he hit I don't know that we ever covered that once he hit the level three of Barbarian where you pick like your sort of subclass of barbarian he chose zealot um so or or no not not zealot shoot not zealot it's uh wh whatever the case I, f I can't remember what it was it's something about uh i don't know his i i really can't remember the thing is uh his rage would summon up the spirits of because like his backstory is that he's fighting like he's he's avenging uh his village that got wiped out by the nightside eclipse by ghouls in a ghoul attack um and so when he rages he conjures up like an army of spirits of the the people of his village that fight alongside him and uh all these li uh lizardmen village folk and um 
I know that this has like happened in the past, but I feel like I just sort of like said it and we just sort of like glazed over it. And I never actually explained like, oh, this is because of his barbarian path and it summons up like the ghosts of his dead village folk. Um, so it says in this point, uh, he, he rages and the shadows dance with the impressions of long dead village folk Hex once shared a home with. Um, then we go to uh, Gent, but alas, their shadow bolt falls short, landing in the ground beneath the Azur's shield. But then with fast hands, Gent uses their bonus action to throw a card from the deck of illusion between themselves and Hex. Uh, hoping to distract them. So, uh, uh, Gent rushes up, tosses this card, and an enormous giant materializes from it. Gent now has 14 guards remaining, but what luck! Another giant! You know? <laughs> um, now, oh yeah, uh, I had, I had forgotten. So at this point, it's Connor's up, and Connor swings his plus two vicious javelin, which I'm pretty sure they got from the drow. Um, not the drow death cultists, but the drow rebels that they joined with. And they had, like, met one who, like, their, their lover or their partner had like recently died in a fight with Azur and they basically you remember you said it was like um you said it was like the beginning of the suicide squad because it was uh yeah. passing a, <laughs> a javelin. Right. So Connor's using the javelin now. The thing to say about this is that um so like it, it pierces into the Azur's fiery appendage. Uh the the thing is this is the encounter where Connor or, or Alex first said that Connor was going to jab with his javelin, a javelin. And this is like really stuck with this, uh, with us onwards through the campaign is referring to the javelin. Uh, javelin. Yeah. Jab with the javelin. Um,. So then Connor uh, summons his his golden shield spirit weapon. Um, but unfortunately, the Azur uh, blocks the blow with his, his shield. Uh, but then the Azur look up in horror as the giant lose over them. Uh, two of the Azur immediately throw themselves into attacking the giant. Jet says, dumb fucks. Uh but the rest of them keep attacking Hex. So they just start laying into Hex because they're just, uh, you know, surrounding him. Um, Hex takes a fiery cut to his left arm. Uh, the one behind him swipes in from behind to cut Hex's right leg. One misses, then the next two successfully hit. One striking Hex in the right arm while the other slashes the side of his face. Uh, but then it's Hex Aquila, and he just starts you know, blasting with his laser pistol again. You know, we never really talk about, um, or we don't talk much about, uh, uh, tactics on this podcast, I find. But one thing, I don't know if you, you know, if your players adhere to this, 
but like my players are always trying to figure out like who is the most injured person because they always want to like take down the person who's taken the most damage right they want to like stack damage on targets rather than my player... spacing it out yeah, you know, generally speaking, like in most of the games that I run, my players don't really think like that. It, it's more that they, honestly, I think most of the time they just attack whoever's closest to them, or they at they try to see how many people they can get with like an area of effect attack. Like in one of my campaigns, someone is playing a, a dragon, a dragonborn that has a, a breath weapon, and anytime he's in combat... He's going like, oh, those guys, those three guys are together. Can I, let me just measure on the map here. Can I get them all with my, the cone of my breath weapon effect? Um, so I think it's more like that. Uh, and I have had a few instances where my players don't try to determine who among the enemies is most injured. Instead, they try to determine who among the party can hit the hardest. And then everybody just buffs that one character and sends them into battle. I feel like if you're looking to wipe out like a lot of people at once, like Arakendor was kind of the the perfect character for that with his do 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 destructive wave, um, which consistently just like blasted whole crowds of enemies out of existence. Um, man, uh, shout out to uh, Storm Clerics. They got that incredibly powerful destructive wave with their channel divinity that can max the damage. Unbelievable. Never played one. Never even had a storm cleric in any of my games. Once they get that ability, they uh, they can just uh, tear through crowds of enemies like uh, freaking Sauron beating dudes with his mace in that uh lord of the rings you know i've been uh playing shadow of war again oh yeah how's that going uh it's it's a pretty great game you're gonna get that golem game oh no <laughs> no freaking way <laughs> uh, i still can't believe they even made that yeah me either it's ridiculous um I'll tell you, though, you know what's crazy to me, uh, this is a little aside, but, um, you know, Shadow of War was made by, I think it's uh, uh, Monolith Entertainment. Yeah, Monolith Productions. And Monolith Productions, like, you know what their first game was? What? Blood. Oh, no kidding! Wow. They also made Well, takes me back. They 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 man, they they've got such a crazy like list of games they made. They made uh The Matrix Online, they made Fear. They wow. made Condemned Criminal Origins, the Condemned hey, series. Hey, I played that one. Yeah, they made the Condemned series. They made uh The Operative No One Lives Forever. Uh Oh wow. They made Alien vs Predator 2. Uh, they did Tron 2. Um, but uh, yeah, lately they've just been doing, or, or their most recent games are all Middle Earth games like Shadow of Mordor or Shadow of War. Um, but they're currently supposed to be working on a Wonder Woman game. 
think that's going to happen? So, I don't know. It's been a long time. Like, Shadow of War was their last game, and it was 2017. So it's been a long time since they, as a company, put anything out. Um, well, and Wonder Woman, like, the whole DC thing is undergoing massive changes right now and uh, seems to be kind of wreaking havoc on their ability to release movies, too. You know, we can you can debate whether or not the movies they're releasing are any good, but uh, I definitely get the sense that because they're planning on rebooting their entire movie universe with James Gunn at the helm, uh, probably probably doesn't make people very interested in the last few movies from their old version of their movie universe coming out, right? Like Aquaman 2 is going to come out, and I haven't. I don't think anybody cares. So I do wonder if uh, if a Wonder Woman game has even a, a chance, or if it'll, if it'll even be finished before there's a big reboot, and then suddenly it's just something that gets tossed by the wayside as a result. I don't know. I think that this game could be great. You know why? Is because all you got to do is take the ring domination mechanic from Shadow of War and then have it applied <laughs> to the lasso. To the lasso. And then okay, yeah. You fill the city with ran like procedurally generated like super villains that then you can like turn to your side and have like call to your aid and stuff just like in shadow of war like as long as it's wonder woman shadow of war i'm totally behind this project and i think it's great i'll be intrigued to see what happens with it and i mean last i checked like i think that they're they're very committed to the project because last i checked like even their hiring page said like they were looking for people who had like an interest in wonder woman and the comic huh. books and stuff so i don't know but i mean hey man they made blood they made fear awesome stuff certainly got the pedigree yeah, I and I mean, like I say, Shadow of War is just a great game. Uh, it's it's really impressive, really. Like the orcs are so reactive, and uh, there's just so much put into it. So much orc dialogue, so much like the music's great. Um, so much, I, yeah, so much of everything. I believe it. Uh, I I didn't play Shadow of War. I played Shadow of Mordor, the, the the one that came before it, and that I really liked. So, can imagine a slightly refined version of that would also be really good. So, uh, the giant attempts to stomp the two Azur attacking it, and the illusion seems to react to the burning heat of the Azur underfoot. Now, I. <laughs> I wonder at this point, because at this point I've had like at least like a week between sessions to figure out how the deck of illusion actually works. So at this point, either I just like willingly doing it differently from how it actually works or this is how it works. But I don't I don't remember, man. Um, uh, Hex blasts the Azur in the head, but its helmet takes the blast an Azur in the head, but its helmet takes the brunt of the damage. Um he blasts him again, this time to the face. Uh, keeps blasting him. Headshot, headshot. Uh, Azur stumbles, disoriented, but still blazing. Um, and, uh, but then, 
Hex takes his offhand shot with his Memphis revolver, and uh, one silver round to the right knee causes the Azur to tumble over and turn to soot and perforated armor. So Hex uses all his attacks in one round to just wipe out one Azur uh, with just like blow, 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 blow. That's how Hex do. Um, I mentioned uh, his last shot there, uh, the the Memphis. Um, so, man, is it even the Memphis Revolver? I need to check my old, uh, my old, uh, note, notes of, uh, Draelic Firearms. Yeah, okay. It's the Memphis Flintlock Pistol. Um, is that right? Or did he get it traded at some point with a Memphis Deluxe? Memphis Deluxe is like a... A Desert Eagle heavy pistol. Man, I'm all confused now. I'm getting confused about my my guns, McGill. <laughs> like that, that's not like you, Tom. Yeah, I are, are. You know what? I'm starting to think actually that Alex just misspoke. I think he shot with the Memphis, but I think he's actually got an Aphrodite. But but maybe I'm wrong. The point is, the Memphis. So the Memphis, there's the Memphis uh, flintlock pistol, which is what they call flintlock pistols in Drail. And then there is a a Desert Eagle, which is like a fully different gun that I think was like a design stolen from the MPOC and then created, uh, recreated by Dimzad and his sort of like black market, um, which is why I think that Hex might have that because he's uh, connected with them. But so so it may be that it may be that um, like Hex through his connections with Dimzad in the black market got that sort of desert eagle. The thing is, there's a weird heritage behind why it is called the Memphis. And it is actually because um, so all these all these guns are named after uh, Greek deities, right? There's even the Apollo laser pistol. Um, but, you know, you've got the Hephaestus shotgun. Uh, so the thing is, back in university when I ran a long campaign, uh, a long chronicle of Scion, one of the main players was my friend Ben, who played a character named Memphis Rockefeller, who was... A uh, son of Aphrodite, who was a male model, but who also had like two desert, like like at the height of his power, he could like fly. He had two desert eagles. Um, he was like a crazy like uh, he had he had all this like light power and all sorts of stuff like that. So, um as a sort of tribute to that character, uh, these sort of non MPOC sideline, like black market firearms are named in honor of Memphis Rockefeller. They're Memphis firearms. Is that the only one that breaks your naming convention? Um, I think so. Generally the other ones are like, 
they're not necessarily Greek deities, but they are like Greek mythology things. Like, uh, so there's the Triton Derringer, uh, the Olympus Musket, uh, the Argus Minigun, uh, the Thanatos Antimatter Rifle. Yeah. Those are the those are the ones that aren't like full on, uh, like you know, classic. Uh, your twelve deity, the, the your main twelve deities there, the ones that appear in Scion. Um. So, uh. Gent moves to get a better get into position and get a better shot. Uh, fires and lands a shadow bolt right into Nazar's back. Uh, the Azar lets out a guttural elemental roar of pain. Um, ha uh, Connor uh, uses his spirit shovel to sweep the right leg out from one of the Azar. Um, and then this is when this is when he first jabbed with his javelin, javelin, uh, stabbing another Azar in the right arm. Uh, the Azur stumbles to one side, just barely alive. Uh, the other thing is that, unfortunately, when he jabs with his javelin in melee combat with these uh, Azur, he takes fire damage because the Azur are these flaming uh, dwarf uh, elementals. Um, feeling the heat from a deep strike. Uh the Azur continue to devote two of their number to battling the illusory giant that continues that appears to be stomping at them like fiery bugs. Despite being an illusion, the giant seems quite vexed by the Azur as they are putting up a competent fight. The illusion must adhere to the reality of its surroundings. The remaining four Azur combine their efforts to attack Hex from all sides, but only one of them manages to get a strike in. Uh, the Azur cut, lands a cut to his left... Uh, the Azur to his left cuts into his arm and uh, then attacks Aquila who gets a nat 20 uh, and for a moment it looks like he the Azur takes a shot on the shield and he does but sears right through piercing deep into the Azur. Uh, then fires again a quick shot to the Azur's right as he stumbles back but then the third shot he manages to deflect and then... Uh, Hex goes in to uh, Hex uh, goes in to bite the Azur, uh, taking a bite out of a big flame in Azur. So uh, Hex just barely manages to push the Azur's shield out of the way, so he can grab him and bite into his neck. Gets a hot mouthful of flame, dealing him fifteen fire damage. Does Hex ever bite thing anything that doesn't damage him? Uh, he bit like a, everything. He everything he bites damages him. He he bit a ghost once. I don't think that damaged oh, yeah, him. That's right. I don't think biting the earth elemental damaged him. It was just a mouthful of dirt. <laughs> Has it ever worked out positively? Has he ever bitten something and been like, "That was great"? I mean, I feel like it gives him a very uh, a very expanded uh, palette. Like he he has a greater knowledge of flavors than perhaps the average person or lizard man. <laughs> uh, 
The illusion of the giant stomps the gra stomps at the ground frantically like someone stomping at a smothered fire. Uh, Jed's pretty pleased with that. Um, giant, unfortunately, is not doing damage, though. He's not really there. Uh, Gent uh, fires and a shadow of bolt uh, goes into the blazing skull of the Azur. The Azur tumbles to the ground, reverting to ashes. Jen says, good, that's my turn. And uh, Connor goes up, shovel swinging on the west guy. Uh, Nat one for the shovel, unfortunately. The one two is west and the one two, uh, whoop, never mind. Uh, and then he says, uh, javelin in. The Azur uh, tumbles to one side, luckily escaping the wrath of the shovel. But then uh, the javelin hits the Azur with one HP. The Azur is destroyed. Uh, Connor stabs in the side and takes one damage for his trouble. And uh, But the fire damage, it should be said, on Connor is reduced because he has fire-resistant armor. Um, the Azur split their attention between the giant and Hex. The giant howls as the Azur slash at its ankles, leaving great burnt cuts in the flesh of the illusion. Uh, both Azur attacking Hex for him is for his left side. He blocks high, but one aims low. Uh, the giant seems. Tom, I, I have a question about that that fire resistant armor. Yeah, what's up? So uh, this is an interesting sort of it's like a, a thought exercise for DMs. So Hex Hex doesn't have the fire resistant armor, right? Is Hex fire resistant? He is fire. Uh, no. No, he is no. resistant to, like, swords and stuff because of his rage, but not so if, fire. So, so uh, indulge me here. If Hex had fire-resistant armor on and he bit the fire giant, would you have applied the resistance to the damage he got? Uh, there's no fire giant. It's just Azur's. Oh, uh, Azur, sorry. He bites the Azur. So. Basically, what I'm asking is like. In a situation where a character has some sort of armor that gives them resistance or immunity to a type of damage like fire, you know, again, in this hypothetical, we'll have Hex wearing fire resistant armor. And then he bites the Azur. Now, logically, there would be no armor on his face when he makes that bite. But because he has the equipment of fire-resistant armor, my question is, would you still apply the fire resistance? I would apply you, the fire resistance. Do you go resistance. by, like, what's on the sheet or the logic, right? I would apply the fire resistance, and my logic behind that would be that it is not just the fire going in his face that is the thing being resisted. It is, like, the sort of grapple in which he grabs the guy and bites him. Like, the fire is coming out of the Azur, like, sort of... It's like a suit of armor with fire coming out of, like, the places where there aren't armor, right? Um, with, like... like I don't know. I could... I guess I could show you the, the, the Azur art oh no it just brought up azerbaijan 
Well, actually, the 5 ER is just... The fire is only, like, his beard and his hair. That's not the art that okay. I'm usually... That, that I'm used to. Um, oh, no. Actually, I've been remembering this wrong. That's just... Uh, it's like that in all the editions. Are you thinking of, like, a Magman? No, I was just thinking... I, I was remembering the image slightly wrong that I thought that, like, the Azur was entirely made of fire when actually... Uh, he's actually kind of made of, like, uh, metal from, like, the... Like it's just kind of like a a, a metal dwarf uh, with fire all around, like for for hair. So the answer to my question, though, is you would give them the fire resistance bonus. This is the image I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so where where is like where is Hex biting that thing? I mean, on the shoulder. Yeah, I'd say probably like do a classic sort of vampire thing, um, unless unless we specified otherwise. Uh, I mean, I guess my my little logic problem here is sort of based on the idea of not specifying <laughs> being the issue. Like, if he doesn't specify where he bites that thing, and he's got this resistant armor. But it's it's not going to be on his jaws or in his mouth. But you would you would still apply the resistance. Yeah, I would apply the resistance, especially like I tend to be, I tend to be a bit generous with the players at this kind of like high level combat. Is like sort of make sure that like if they have a bonus or something, they're getting it. Um, just because I don't want them to, I I don't want to like, you know, hamstring them in that way. Uh. But and to be clear, that's also what I would do. It's like you got the bonus on your sheet, so you get the bonus. But just just saying, you know, uh, bit this thing, bit the Azer, and then took fire damage, and then you followed up by talking about someone else having fire-resistant armor, and I couldn't help but think, like, you know, logically, there wouldn't be a bonus on the bite, because the... Presumably, he'd yeah, get that but, fire damage in his mouth. But like I say, I, the way I would reason it out is I would say that the resistance is applying to more than just the bite, but it's also applying to sort of like the grapple that, like the, the you know, when I say sort of like do it like vampire style, there's sort of like the like grabbing him and everything. Yeah. I'd say that like the, the fire is like, you know, protecting his neck and all that stuff, you know. Yeah, Whatever. yeah, because because we don't get sort of we don't really get granular on where the damage is being dealt. Though I guess you could theoretically sort of specify where the damage is being dealt on the enemy or on the player. But if you don't specify, then yeah, apply the bonus, I guess. So, uh, the giant seems frightened now. It keeps trying to put out the fire at its feet, but the fire keeps fighting back. Um, there's one, uh, near Hex that's heavily wounded. So Hex tries blasting him, but, uh, the first shot is deflected on the shield. The first one is a, the second one is a gnat one. The shot goes wide. Finally get him in the left side, and he falls into a pile of armor and ash. Uh, then, uh... 
Hex uses his second win to gain some HP there. So then uh, Gent is up next. Um, Gent uh, fires another Shadow Bolt and uh, detects, like, even from a distance, Gent can detect the Azure wincing as it reaches for the side that they just pierced. And they, Gent says, you got this giant, and then ends their turn. Connor's turn. The giant doesn't seem so sure. It kicks at the Azur, but then grabs its foot in pain as if contact from the burning in contact from the burning elemental. Connor uses his uh, spirit shovel to uh, smack another uh, Azur, but a new trick this time. Instead of simply smacking the Azur, the shovel takes aim and lodges itself in the wound left by the gent's shadow bolt left in the Azur's side. Then Connor, uh, or sorry, the Azur falls slain. Then Connor uh, stabs another Azur um, with the javelin, deep strike into Azur's right leg. And uh, Connor takes nine fire damage after reduction. The Azur uh, focus their efforts on Hex, but they miss completely. The giant stands in place, nursing its burned and cut up lower legs. Hex. Uh, attacks uh, one of the um, Azur, but center mass, but the armor is thick. Uh, these guys are rocking some heavy-duty armor. Um, another strike is, uh, or another blast is uh, largely absorbed by its right pauldron. Another shot to the right shoulder, still standing. And then Gent uh, wants to hit finish him and whiffs. Rolls a 13. His armor's too strong. Gent uh, pulls out the rapier and runs towards the Azur out of anger. They manage to close the distance, but that's their turn. Uh, Connor uh, uses their spirit shovel and uh, swipes the left leg out from under this uh, resilient Azur. It clatters to the ground, dead. Connor swings at the last guy, gets a nat one. For some reason, I said Jabberlino. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the remaining Azur strikes Hex. Uh, Hex uh, is uh, takes a fiery slash to the right arm, but then blasts the last guy. Uh, the giant begins lumbering towards the worker huts, but becomes startled when he notices the last Azur still blazing next to him. Hex shoots the Azur in the left arm. And then for the second shot, nat 20, a vicious groin shot that leaves the Azur swaying on its feet. And finally, he, blow off, he blows off the left leg at the thigh, causing the rest of it to tumble into ashen pieces of armor. Oh, damn. Yeah, Gent said, wow. Uh, the giant begins wandering off towards the worker huts. Hex says, should, should we follow that guy? Um... Oh my god, here is where I did I said, just realizing now that I misinterpreted the deck of illusions. People detect the illusion as soon as they make contact with it, so it doesn't take damage. You just pass through it. So in the future, this tactic won't work as well. Not a, not a full-on combat diversion anyway. But you can still use that as a diversion. You know, the kobold that ran away, that was a pretty perfect one. The Arrhenias that tamed the hellhounds, that's also a great one. It's just, uh, you can't have it fight for you the way that it just did. But hey, it was kind of fun in that combat. 
Why not? Um, yeah, Jen's like, I appreciate that I worked that it worked this time. And Jen says, uh, ah, let him go blow off some steam. He had a rough day. And Hex says, right, well, on the plus side, maybe we can reach Noiter, who all comes out to attack him. Jen says, or we can sneak away while they try to figure him out. And uh, then I said, the giant seems to be hanging around the worker huts. It doesn't seem to have much of a range at the moment. Uh, and I say, to be honest, I'm not sure the card illusions can move to other spaces without the use of doing so magic without the user doing so magically. Jen's like, poor guy. And I say, you can dismiss him at will or by moving the card. And uh, Jen says, do we want to search the huts? And Jen says, uh, I, I could carry the card with me. Would that let me let him follow like a, on a leash? I say, once you move the card, it's done. The illusion lasts until the card is moved or until the illusion is dispelled. When the illusion ends, the image on his card disappears. And that card can't be used again. And, uh, Jen Walks up to the giant, bows solemnly, says namaste, and then moves the card to dismiss the giant. And I say, good giant. <laughs> and he says, uh, when we get back, I want one for a pet. And uh, we update their XP, which is uh, we got there at 293,975 XP. And uh, we say, okay, cool. So right now you're at the worker huts overlooking the edge in the trench that connects the over big overgrown chasm you use to infiltrate the area. If you follow the trench, it will lead you to the gates, which you're supposed to be checking out. And Jen's like, want to loot some huts? Classic gent. And uh, Hex is like, sure, but let's be quick. So they roll uh, investigate with advantage. However, the huts are generally quite empty. Some of them have tables, workbenches, and similar trappings, but all have been cleared of tools and valuables. These are the mundane remnants of a work camp. Uh, Hex got a nat 20, and I say, yeah, this place has been cleared out. Anything useful or valuable has been moved, would have been moved elsewhere in the outpost once his work on this end stopped. And uh, Hex says, what's this? A recipe book? And I say, ooh, I like that. And Hex pockets the small small leather journal. And he says, uh, right, no loot, let's scoot, urges Connor. The gent writes on a wall with some ash, beware the beaked one. Says, cool, let's check out the gate. And I say, Bonesong rules, in reference to uh, gent's tribe. Entering the massive trent that cut, trench that cuts through the earth of Egglock to lead into the rest of Ashgrain outpost, the group sees the heavy iron gate barring the passage just up ahead. To their horror, they see something else, something that makes them do a double take. Scuttling out of a fissure in the side of the trench just in front of the gate, they look like they see what looks like a cross between a dragon and a centipede crawling down one side of the passage, across to the other, and up the wall into another fissure. What makes them uncertain of their own senses momentarily is that this description strongly reminds them of the huge many-legged reptiles that haunted their dreams. Everyone may roll nature. Uh, seeing the creature in reality, unmarred by the vague lens of a remembered dream, Gent recognizes it as a behir. It is a massive, lightning-breathing monster, immune to electricity and capable of both constricting its prey into submission and, if it's the right size, swallowing its victim whole. And Gent whispers to themselves, But I am the right size. 
Do you know the bay here? <laughs> the bay here. Oh gosh. Uh, it's a monster. I'm trying to remember what it looks like. I've definitely used them before. It's a many legged reptile. It's like a cross between. That's right. A... It's like the, the, that's right. I know this one from the, specifically the illustration from, I believe, uh, the Monster Manual 3.5, where it's this sort of like purplish blue looking guy. Yeah. The uh, the five e one looks pretty awesome too. It's like uh, kind of uh, I don't know. It I I feel like it could be uh, sort of like one of those um, more like uh, Chinese style dragons, you know, because of the like long yeah. body it has. You could style it that way. I feel like I did at some point. I feel like it may have actually been in al's aces when uh because this is yeah this is the lightning breathing one there was one where there was like al's aces when they were in the snow globe dungeon there was like a crazy like like a a huge like pillar that there was like a a pool of water around and then this like lightning creature like coiling around uh the pillar i don't i don't remember i feel like that was a bay here but Maybe. I sent um, you a picture of the, the yeah. bay here that I know. Have to include that's, that in the show notes. That's the one. Uh, so Connor reaches out and casts heal on Hex. And uh, Connor gets a bit of health himself because he's a life cleric. Uh, and I say, uh, Gent would likely be able to sneak past the beast and examine the gate without engaging the Bahir. And... Uh, Jen says, yeah. Jen says to themselves over and over, not a spider, not a spider. And then uh, stealth as best they can. Jen uses their shadow training to pass through the deep darkness of the trench unseen. As they approach the gate, they roll investigation with advantage to size up the gate without attempting to crack it. And they get a nat 20. And uh, I say, very good. This is a very heavy gate. Would take legendary feet a pretty legendary feat of strength to simply break through it unless it were the effort of multiple people perhaps with a tool such as a battering ram the lock is also not cheap not an impossible challenge for one such as yourself but not a cakewalk either that gate is not trapped the gent could attempt to pick the lock while they're here it's not mandatory but leaving the back door unlocked would be a hell of a boon for the soldiers coming this way so uh, gent does that they roll thieves tools and they manage to unlock the gate Bay here hasn't reemerged from the fissure in the uh, side of the trench. Uh, Jen has gone above and beyond the recon asked of them here. They should be clear to take off now and head back up the side of the chasm to regroup with the Draelic forces. And Jen says, yeah, I'm going to sneak the fuck back. And uh, get a 34 on stealth. I say Jen is back with Connor and Hex about as suddenly as they disappeared. From here, if they want to return to the Draelic forward camp, they can make an acrobatics check to scale the chasm again. And Jen yells, parkour! Alex asks how long it's been since they started the mission uh, because enhance ability lasts an hour. Uh, determines that Connor is good uh, because of his uh, enhance ability is still up. It lasts an hour. Um, 
However, uh, so basically, Jake gets an 18, Hex gets a 19, Connor gets a 12, and I say, say a little prayer to Paylor, guidance. And he says, oh shit, right, thanks, pray. 16 total, and I say, the DC is literally 13, <laughs> so that prayer is going to save Connor a lot of chasm-tumbling grief. The Alex is like, Paylor lights our our way. So, returning to the Draelic forward camp, they find that the clusters of soldiers have begun organizing themselves more pointedly. The groups now effectively form waves, the first of which is watching the tree line that they enter. The second wave is set up tents, establishing a triage line behind the first wave. They can spot one of the illithids moving from tent to tent, apparently just dedicating to this wave of the encamped soldiers. As they pass through the front line of this camp, the soldiers alert Morgwar so that he approaches the group on arrival. And, uh, man, I even got, uh, or, or, no, Alex, uh, Alex asked at this point, what's Morgwar's rank? Commander or, like, captain or sergeant? And I said, uh, Sarge. Didn't we go through this on last episode? Exa- exactly. I got all confused. <laughs> and this time I confidently said Sarge, gunnery sergeant, in fact. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that was, like, that's just, like, his his title from, like, I don't know, his position in the Drelic. I don't know. This is weird. He's serving a commander. Like, he's a commanding officer right now. But he's a gunnery sergeant is, like, his rank, I think. I don't know. I'm not sure that makes sense. Uh, so he says, how's the back gate look? Uh, cutting right to business. And uh, Hex says, Sergeant, the way is mostly clear, but we encountered a, what did you call it, gent? And uh, gent says, uh, an abomination of an epic legs and le- lightning. A bay here. Uh, <laughs> me In the background, like, uh, uh, Alex is explaining, like, the reason he... Uh, did it, he didn't explain to uh, Morgar what it was, was that Connor and Hex both rolled twos on their nature check. Um, Morgar frowns. Damn, one more thing to account for. At least we know it's there. The worker huts are clear otherwise. And Hex says, yes, sir, and the back gate is unlocked. And uh, <laughs> Jen had actually said an abomination of epic legs and flame. And then uh, out of character, Alex said uh, lightning. But then Jet said, lightning is just sky fire. I took a science class. <laughs> Morgar says, good. An unlocked gate with a guard dog is better than a locked one. I may be able to come up with something for the bay here. Maybe. May depend on you guys, tr- truth be told. He sighs. We've begun to- the staggered rest before the big push. Morgar gestures at the second wave of the camp. We expect the effects of sleeping in the forest will overcome many of the troops, but at least we can keep that manageable. Sleep in shifts, each shift under watch with ready medical aid as required. Morgor looks back at the tents and then back to your group. In the meantime, I've got a few final objectives for your team to complete before we launch the attack. Ready and willing, Connor salutes. Morgor clears his throat, glancing back somewhere in the camp for a moment. So, between our scouts and the drow assistance you secured... We've had some developments. Firstly, the drow guide you secured for us, Rhea, brought a group of drow resistance fighters willing to fight alongside us in the Battle of Ashgrain Outpost. Naturally, I was wary of these new volunteers, given what you told me about before about trouble with the drow. 
There were only a handful of them, though. One squad in the midst of our whole army. And as far as I could gather, they were united by their animosity towards Ashgrain Outpost rather than any kind of house loyalty. Morgor pauses. Unfortunately, one of them has been begun arguing that, the, that they should desert our cause. Perhaps they took offense to my suspicion. Whatever the case, if they do desert, we'll have lost these potential allies as quickly as we got them. Maybe you could talk to them, repair relations, keep them on our side. Unless you think there'll be more trouble than they're worth. Connor grimaces. We can speak with them. Any idea what this rabble-rousing is about? Morgor thinks for a moment. Well, I don't know a lot about their background, but you know, it's strange. They came to us, apparently glad at the opportunity to fight their oppressors. Now one of them is arguing against it. I wonder. It's not out-and-out out crazy, but maybe there's something going on with them. Or maybe just the one. And uh, Connor says... They seem to have been living in the forest for some time. Maybe it's taken some mental toll on them. Morgar nods. However things turn out with the drow, our scouts have found two key locations for your team to infiltrate before the battle begins. The first is a forge where Azur overseers have the slaves working there bound by some sort of magical circle. If they deem the magical circle necessary to contain those slaves, there must be a reason they don't want them freed. A magic circles can be broken, sure as shackles. Morgor looks to Connor, then to Gent. On that note, we also lo located a prison camp on site. Morgor glances over his shoulder, and you notice he's glancing at Commander Gog, who's carrying a massive crates of ammunition to each wave of the camp. We've confirmed they're holding Gog's bronze dragon friend there. Unfortunately, whether this was always the case, or simply an effective exposure to the forest, the dragon's a bronze shadow dragon. This isn't necessarily disastrous in and of itself, but given its current captivity, we can expect it to be extraordinarily pissed off. That, combined with its darker nature, may make it a danger, even and especially after you've set it free. Getting through to it will likely be a hell of a negotiation. Morgor pauses for a moment. That said, there are likely to be more, less obvious prisoners in the camp that you'll want to release either way. So regardless of your views on taking down a raging shadow dragon, we want you to bust that prison camp before the offensive. Any questions? And uh, one of them says, uh, how attached is Gog to his dragon friend? If we have to do some physical no negotiations, is he going to be okay? Morgar clears his throat and then says quietly, I mean, unless the dragon is fully against us, I think we want to avoid lethal combat with it. On that note, I suspect causing it harm will not help your case as far as winning it over goes. So I'd say avoid of violence however you can. That said, I don't imagine God will, Gog will take it too hard if the dragon comes out of a hostile prison camp with some scratches. And, uh, they say, understood. Gent says, in your plan for battle, how much strength do we have? That gate isn't going to move easily, even unlocked. And uh, Hex er, Morgor says... If it's unlocked, we'll be able to have forward strike team open it for those that follow. It should be said that we'll be able to, that we'll be attacking from more than one approach. There'll be heat on that gate, but not more than we can efficiently move down the chasm and through the trench. Even then, the outpost will be dealing with other problems when we make our move from the north. Morgor clears his throat again. Actually, that idea I had, if we can get that dragon, that'll be a counter uh, that'll be a hell of a counter to the bay here. That would go a long way to assisting our force coming in through the back door. Jed says, that is also what, it was I, what I was thinking. And uh, 
I said, uh, any other questions? I think I'm going to have his break before proceeding. And uh, Jen says, do we know the dragon's name? And I say, the best you have is Cub. And uh, he says, uh, Hex says, yeah, I got a question, but not for you. And Hex chases after Gog. And uh, I say, Gog was also unsure, uh, unclear. Uh, Gog was unclear on the nature of the name Cub. And uh, Hex says, hey, hey, Gog. And, uh, yeah? Gog looks up, laying down a pallet of ammunition crates. Uh, Want to wrestle? Without waiting for an answer, Hex grabs Gog around the waist, takes a deep breath, <laughs> aims a heavy headbutt directly into Gog's sweaty armpit. Gent says, this seems normal and expected. Uh, a brief montage of Hex getting his ass kicked by an ogre of immense martial prowess. Uh, Gog looks around as he charges him. Ha, no fair. Ha, hey. He chuckles as you douse yourself in ogre's scent. Morgar shakes his head, briefly breaking up a small audience captured by the spectacle. And then Hex says, uh, or Hex slurs through a bleeding lip. Well, hopefully shadow dragons still have a sense of smell. And uh, everyone gets 400 XP for completing the recon. Uh, so they get, they're now at 2,000, 9, 294,375 XP. And uh, I say, cool, unless there's anything else, I figure we'll pick up with the drow. Whatever you want to do first next time. I figure the drow will be the first order of business since you're already at camp. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and I say each session brings you closer to level 19. Only about 10,000 XP left. And, uh, yeah. Also, fun little note. Uh, my brother then congratulated me on completing a full timeline playthrough of crusader kings 2 because i had just done that for the first time hey, nice. uh having brought my fraticelli norse kingdom all the way to the end and just evoking the name of crusader kings makes me want to fire up crusader kings 3 again there's so much uh additional content for that game that i haven't played yet man and stellaris oh it's all so good it's good stuff. You know, I never I never did get into Stellaris, though. I own it, and I fired it up once and tried to get into it, but maybe I was just in the wrong mood. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So, that... Uh, do you have any more questions about that? Uh, no more about that. I, I fired in a few questions as you described that, but uh, actually, here's one. Um what you were mentioning you know level 19 approaches what level are your players now because this is oh, the campaign that is still still ongoing right yeah they're they're full level 20 now in the previous campaigns in al's aces and mpox finest i can't remember did they did they all hit level 20 yep right on Alzace has even got boons beyond that. Crazy, man. I don't know if I've ever even run a game where the players properly hit level 20. Well, we've been going uh, pretty long on my thing, a full hour, so uh, covered it pretty in-depth. But, you know, I don't, feel it, I don't feel so bad about it now after seeing Dimension 20 and seeing how they do, like, a full every second episode of just like full-on combat people yeah. just being like, I got this 
It's like, uh, you hit. You, uh, you did You miss. Uh, you gotta hit. Oh, shit, we gotta focus on the big guy. Oh, man. I'm gonna use Spirit Guardians. Ah, I don't even have to do anything. The Spirit Guardians are kicking ass. Classic <laughs> stuff. Let's, and I uh, will I will say it's not not bad that you uh, had a good long chunk dedicated to Coyote's Aegis because Bucket of Bolts is pretty short. Oh, that's good. Although I will say we didn't even get into my Notorious game. Well, we can talk about that too. Um, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to focus on Bucket of Bolts because the next phase of my game of Notorious involved my nomad nasgrask getting a spaceship but um i mean i guess we're in the rpg danger room now insert theme song here Not me. tell me about your experience with notorious uh, so I did like as much, I like just rolled the dice as much as possible, even on stuff where it wasn't put down to a dice roll, I dice rolled it. So like if I had a choice between two things and it was just like an open choice, I always just like rolled. And if it was, you know, one to three, I took the first choice and it was four to six. I took the second choice. Right um, on. so fully randomized, uh, experience, I filled up uh, like two and a half pages of my journal here. Um, I was uh, uh, rolling my my species. I got bought or, or, you know, I I got bought as my thing. So I was a I was basically a droid. I was an assassin droid. Uh, Nice. Or an IG-88. Yeah, basically. But like a bounty hunter droid. Um, Yeah, I named myself 1R Mark 1. Um, my personality was nervous, tense, and I carried a piece of a, of my pelicid or pelicid creator like my rock person creator. Um, my, uh, my scar was that I was filthy from neglect. Um, my origin was that I was a corrupted trade alliance translator. And my trigger was that I killed my genius creator and in confusion, uh, in the confusion of my original factory awakening. Um, so I had a lot of connection to the trade Alliance, this like multi like intergalactic, uh, super corporation, uh, syndicate. Um, and, uh, that was where my background come from, came from. Although I also had this whole thing about that. I was, carrying around a piece of the creator that I had accidentally destroyed, um, who was this, uh, crystal person. So I still had this piece of crystal I carried around with me, but, uh, as one of these bots, I got a cool auto tracking laser rifle, which, uh, gave me a bonus against, uh, multiple foes. I got claws to attack with, but most importantly, if things got really bad, I had a self-destruct that gave me an extremely powerful attack that, like, bypassed defense. Um, which I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, I like spoilers, but I learned the hard way that that thing, that ability exists because getting to that bounty and not winning the fight is so frustrating. <laughs> 
It really is. And I mean, that's what happened to me last time. Um, my first run through, I, I didn't, as I said, I didn't kill my target Mako Suds. He got away. And uh, it is really frustrating. But I got to tell you, as I'm continuing that story, I'm finding it really motivating, too. Like, I'm really uh, on this second go around with Notorious this time. I'm playing it the right way. I'm making the right choices so that I'm going to be ready when I confront Mako again. Um, yeah, and then I got uh, my outfit was glowing eyes, pistons, and blast plate, which gave me a plus two to defense. But, of course, my scars that I'm all filthy and, and uh, like haven't been maintained at all. Um, so my target... Uh, I used chat GPT. I, I put in uh, the the species I got was Taloc, just like Nas Grask, uh, yeah. lizard person. Um, you could have, favorite. and that's that's funny because, of course, under the species lists are the lists of possible names, which is where I took Nas Grask from. So your target could have been my character. I, it could have been, but I didn't go with that because I knew I was going to randomly generate everything and like I wanted to, you know, I wanted to see what, what came up. Um, so I put all the names into ChatGPT and asked if it could generate another thing in that style. It gave me Moko Talarn. Uh, so Moko Talarn was vain, arrogant, and wore glass steel shades. Um, he was hanging out on the planet Iyama, uh, and his my client faction was the Old Empire, and uh, Moko Talarn's uh, crime was... Uh, that he broke, a, a, he he like broke a mystic order warrior out of captivity uh, that was due for interrogation. Um, so uh, as the as it instructed me, I landed my ship in old factory ruins on outskirts of major city. I sort of record this all in like jot points the way like like my robot like uh duty log basically you know oh okay so, that's like, cool so like arrive at small new uprising up enclave spoke with local no choice but to stay loyal to new uprising i've got to be careful what they what i got to be careful what i say never know who's listening wanted by old empire sheltering in enclave uh took rest got motivation i mean you know i could do the whole thing or I could just tell you how it went. What do you think? Well, something that uh, that I'd like to remark upon uh, about how you're doing it, sort of the the short bullet points, like short form, you know, point by point uh, record of it. Whereas I'm writing it more like a a journal. I I call it sort of medium form, where I'm not like writing it like a novel. I'm still doing these bullet points, but my bullet points are like three or four sentences that describe things a bit in a bit more detail. Uh, for example, um, Aura Day acted quicker than me, slashing me across the collarbone and shoving me down the ramp. Aura's ship took off, leaving me freezing on the landing pad. So, you know, I was uh, writing it like a bullet point journal. But um, last night I was telling Caitlin about Notorious, and she said, oh, so it's just like a creative writing exercise. And I said, no, because... Uh, while the game invites you to go as deep as you want and write as much and flesh out as much as you want, you can very easily just play it with only the information that they give you on those tables, which is sort of similar to what you're doing, 
where you're just you're rolling up you're like okay you know i i'm speaking to the local they say this like i recognized the the whole thing about uh, a local the local you spoke to having to be loyal to a specific faction and then you even wrote down the quote that is in the table saying like i gotta be careful who's listening well um, the thing is like the then the next one though is found local singing a haunting tune while working. And I had to come up with what the haunting tune was and why it was important to me. So I said uh, it was a trade alliance anthem that was played by delivery bots uh, that I heard echoing below the Skyway train station. Ah, see, that's cool. Uh, Anyway, my point was just that uh, I think one of the strengths of Notorious is that while it does invite you to use these prompts to do a bit of creative writing and and flesh things out. Even if you're not a really creative type, you could still play this game using only the information uh, that's given from the source book. It would be more like the suggested arcade mode that the, the game mentions, but you can still do it without having to have like, you know, a, a bursting imagination of creativity. You can still have fun with just what's in the tables. And I think that's that's good. I like that it accommodates uh even those players who aren't like avid writers or anything like that you know what i'll say is i'm looking at all these notes and i'm like this is basically worth an entire like my half episode of the my half of the episode so i think honestly if we're gonna cover this we we should devote like an episode to it of like me i'm gonna all do right my yeah let's do it i mean uh, i'm i myself am far from done with notorious so i'm all i'm all in favor of us uh, talking more in depth about your adventure with it, uh, maybe on our next episode. Um, to to bring everyone up to speed on Na- the Ballad of Nas Grask, I'm not going to go through like everything that happened to him. I had some very cool encounters. Um, one thing that I, I thought was neat was when I resumed the game with Nas, uh, because he was going to a new planet... I, you know, rolled on the planet chart, and this time I got the planet Talus, which is a desert planet, and uh, so I was filling out the planet report profile, and as I was doing it, I was like, this is perfect. This is like a perfectly logical continuation of the story that I was telling, and, you know, it's just coincidence that I got this, but it works perfectly because NASA's employer, the guy he's got a contract with, is Scab the Targ, well, on Talus... That's where Scab the Targ's palace is. And then the minor faction on Talus is the Mystic Order. And as we learned at the end of my last game, uh, my target, Mako Suds, he's a member of the Mystic Order. So this is great. It's like it's I just going... want to say I was on the planet Iyama, and that's the like Coruscant City planet. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was really awesome. I haven't been there yet. I guess I'm basically on Tatooine with uh, with the huts. Yeah. This desert planet. Um, but I just, I love how, like, all the pieces fit into place here, where I was like, I'm chasing Mako Suds. Where's he going? He's going back to see the Mystic Order, and he's also going back to the planet where my employer lives. So, perfect story opportunities. Um so I went back, I started investigating, I had some cool encounters along the way. This time I made more of a point to speak with the locals. I was pretty, Nas was pretty quiet in uh, the first game. This time he's talking to the locals a lot more. And also I'm being a bit more strategic. Anytime 
I'm presented with a choice, I really consider the options, and for the early phases of the game, I was choosing things that would get me more motivation in favor, and like, basically sort of banking up motivation and, and preparing for eventually getting a bunch of notoriety and starting to have those showdowns with my leads and eventually my target. Because of course, in my last game, I favored just taking points in notoriety, and then by the end, all the leads were just kicking the snot out of me because I didn't have any way of, of boosting myself. Also, I lucked out a lot more uh, in this game where a lot more uh, NPCs were attacking me and it just said they attacked. It didn't specify melee. I got hit by too many melee attacks in the first game and, and NASA's strength is in ranged attacks. So I lucked out getting a lot more NPC attacks that were non-specific and that meant I could fight with ranged and I won a lot more of them. Um, but the, the, big, the big thing that happened to NAS this time around is when I got my first lead, I was in Scab the Targ's palace, I was in the bar, and I spotted my lead. And I rolled for species, and it specified the Pelucid, the, the crystalline aliens. And one of my leads that got away in the last game was a Pelucid called Oraday. So I went, you know what? This is Oraday. I found my lead again. And, and so I rolled up the showdown, and the showdown takes place on a speeding hover train, but a little hitch is that there's also a stampede of pack animals coming right towards me. And I was like, okay, this is great. So I spot Oraday. She makes a break for a hover train that's leaving out of Scab's palace. And uh, on the way there, as a like diversion uh, or just an obstacle for me, she opens the gate on like a little paddock that's full of gurns. And all the gurns run at me in a stampede. But Nas, of course, befriended a Gurn herder named Panna in the last game. So he was able to grab the reins of one and use it as a mount to catch up to the hover train, jumping on board, and then engaging in the fight with Aura Day. And I got the drop on her because the my my roles for uh, for the showdown and and my lead said that uh, when I came upon her, she was talking to my target on like a little holophone, a hologram. Uh, so I spotted her in the back of uh, the one of the rear cars of the hover train. She's talking to Mako Suds, and uh, she says, and Mako's like, you know, don't trust this guy. He'd kill a hundred innocent people if it meant if that's what it if that's what the guild ordered. And of course, my uh, my like scar from the past is that I I failed to act and it resulted in the death of innocence. So like my blood starts boiling, saying I'd I'd willfully kill innocent people, and uh, so I step out. It says I gotta speak to my lead. So I step out of hiding, guns drawn, and I go, yeah, he's right, but his is the only life I need to take. And if you take me to him, I might let you live. But, you know, after our last encounter, I'm tempted to kill you anyway. And uh, so Aura attacked me. And this time I was able to use ranged attacks. I had a pile of motivation and I killed her. I took oh, out damn. Aura Day. So I got I got one of my leads and then proceeded on. I arrived at uh, the next stop on the hover train's uh, tracks and uh, I got off in a targ fortified base 
and not really knowing she died before I could get a chance to figure out where Mako was. So I decided to just continue following the hover train to its next stop because, you know, or a day was on it. Maybe she's headed towards where Mako was. And that's sort of that's what's happened in my game since the last time. But I just I love how pieces are falling into place here and I'm getting these opportunities to really actively continue the story where it's like, oh man, my new lead is a Pelucid, just like the last time. Well, it's the same one that got away. And like I said, leading me to the planet where uh, Scab the Targ, my employer, was. Just great opportunities for fun little little story threads. Uh, I backed the uh, the Outsiders expansion for this too that apparently has like some trilogy mode for extended storytelling and of course lots more tables to roll on so really excited to see how that pans out hell yeah you want to hear about uh bucket of bolts yeah all right so um bucket of bolts is created by jack harrison and uh connection it has to notorious is there's a bonus content sheet with different, like, new tables, basically. Just new tables that uh, that people have created. And uh, one of those new tables was created by Jason Price, who created Notorious. So uh, he's contributed to Bucket of Bolts. I think the way I'll start talking about Bucket of Bolts is just to read this little poem that's at the end of the rules document. Busted, rusted, set adrift, cloaked in cloth and grime. This old ship lies still, a relic from a different time. Lift the dust sheets one by one, pry the broken latch, up the ladder, flaking paint up towards the hatch. Crank it open, hit the switch, dim lights flicker on, yellowed bulkheads, fraying wires, captains dead and gone. In the cockpit, fire it up, engines thrumming roar, creaking, lurching up towards, shining stars once more. So, bucket of bolts is a game of iconic spaceships and infamous captains. Your character is the ship that you're creating. And this game is about generating the different eras of this spaceship, the different eras of its existence, the different captains who have captained it. And you also get to, to specify what happened when it was dormant in between captains, how long it was left dormant, what happened to the, the game world around it as it rested, and then how it re-enters the, the story, the grander plot. Um, so I'll say right off the top, here are a few, a few thoughts that I had about Bucket of Bolts before I even get into the specific, specifics of it. One is that I, I, I really like how this game fits together, but I think uh, it's, it's not a great document because the game itself, really you need two documents. Uh, there's the Bucket of Bolts rules document and the Bucket of Bolts content document. And the rules tell you how to play the game. It's a little like five page document. And then the content is like the... Well, it's the content of the games, the tables that you choose from and the questions that it prompts you with, but they're not in the same PDF. So I'm constantly, as I'm playing, clicking between different PDFs and all I can think is like, man, why isn't this just like one 
one big source document, uh, maybe even with little hyperlinks or, or bookmarks in it. I think that that's a, basically the most major failing of this, in my opinion. Consolidate all this, like make it a source book. Don't make it one sheet with the rules and then the other sheet with the tables. But uh, the other thought that I had about this is this one, unlike Notorious, this one I think fully is a creative writing exercise. There are no dice involved in this. It's all about oh. choices. It's all about choices that you make. And, uh, and, and that's really all it is, is you're presented with options and you make your choices. And then occasionally the game prompts you with questions. So um, you decide sort you decide these things about your ship. You create your ship at the beginning, uh, choosing things like uh, traits. Add three traits describing your ship. And then here are some suggested traits: nimble, sleek, precise, luxurious, pristine, utilitarian, outdated, infamous, leaky, infested, finicky frail, sluggish. Um, so your ship is constructed by a team of starship engineers. Describe the engineers. Think of their design principles, political affiliations, add three traits describing your ship, and then sketch out your ship. Give your ship a model name and a simple factory designation. This is where you start. And uh, so that's where I started. I created uh, a freighter called 73RM1T, manufactured by the Trade Alliance, since I'm tying this into my Notorious game. Uh, it was manufactured on Storix, which is an industrial planet, and it was made specifically for to be a long-range courier. Uh, it's utilitarian, not intended to be flashy. It's equipped with light weapons, mainly for defense. So its traits are utilitarian, resilient, and outdated. Um, there are some ship questions that come up on the first, this is another cri critique I have just about the layout of the document. So it says, you know, to do all that, give your ship a model name, etc. And then underneath is a table of ship questions, things like every good ship needs a name. What is your ship's name and why? Across the galaxy, there are spaceports in every shape, size, and standing. Why do you feel, uh, at home? Why do some feel like home more than others? Your last captain installed a secret modification that they never got to use. What does it do? So all of these are just sort of prompts for you to fill in the details about the ship. Here's my criticism, though. These ship questions, you don't, got, you don't answer them yet. Uh, it says here, answer these during play. You don't need to answer them all. And then underneath the ship questions, that's the collection of traits. So there's this whole chunk on the first page where it's saying, like, add traits to your ship to describe it. Sketch out your ship. And then between that prompt and the suggested traits is this table of questions that you're not supposed to touch yet. I even made the mistake of looking at it and already thinking like, oh, what's my ship's name? But then I'm like, but the game doesn't want me to do that yet. Again, just like a little critique of the way this is laid out. After you have given your ship a name, or sorry, a model name, factory designation, given it a little sketch, I know I sent you a sketch of my ship, um, then the termite. the termite, yeah, see, I, all, I, I, I already decided on its name before I was supposed to, but it's the termite. Um, 
I didn't realize it was all spelt with numbers and stuff, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 73RM1T, uh, the termite. Um, so after you do the basics and create the concept for your ship, do the sketch, choose some traits, uh, give it a little bit of background, then you enter into what the game is, the, the layout of the game. So the structure of the game takes place over three acts. Uh, each act describes a different era of your ship's history. And in each act, uh, you there are two captains who pilot the ship at different points. And so the first act is called the High Era. This is when your ship is brand new. The second act is the Time of Strife. This is after your ship's been around for a few years. And then Act 3 is The Descent. And this is where your ship is becoming clunky and rusty and a bit of a relic. So you start in the High Era. And, the and at this point, uh, the way you play each act is by choosing captains. You go through a little series of steps with each captain. And then you choose... Uh, a period of rest, which is however long your ship uh, was without a captain. So first you choose a captain, and each era has a list of four potential captains. And then uh, Bucket of Bolts also comes with a bonus content document, uh, which I mentioned before, and that has more captains that you can pick from. So there are a lot more options, but I just went with the base document for my first playthrough. So Act 1, the options for your first captain are a long-distance hauler, a renowned mercenary, an intelligence agent, and a galactic senator. So for the termite, I just chose my first guy was a long-distance hauler. I, I pulled up my Star Wars name generator, and uh, the first captain is named Blorn Avon. And Blorn Avon is bullish, forthright, and protective. And then it says, okay, so describe their family, blood or otherwise, who live aboard the ship with them. Uh, and that these prompts that I'm, I'm giving, these are specific to the long-distance hauler captain. So I said that uh, Lauren has a co-pilot who's uh, or like a real pencil pusher, uh, a bit of a nerd, named uh, Leda Lenda. And... Um, then it says, what is the most valuable cargo that filled your hold? I said the most valuable cargo that the termite shipped was uh, a bionic, a one-of-a-kind bionic heart for a wealthy CEO's dying son. And uh, so the, you know, it, it's almost like this ship was, was manufactured to deliver this high precious cargo. It was the first thing, one of the first things that it did. Then after you choose and describe your captain, and answer uh, captain questions, you then choose an event from the captain tables. And you get to pick first between two different tables, depending on whether, uh, whether the thing that, like the, whether the significant event that happened under this captain was positive or negative, basically. Either you choose from the love and triumph table, which is inspiring achievements, passionate action, and daring maneuvers, or you choose from the scum and villainy table, which is crooked schemes, misplaced loyalties, and blundering mistakes. I chose from love and triumph. I said that Blorn 
uh, escorted a prominent official to a momentous meeting. And then it says, describe them, why their gathering posed such a risk. Who tried to stop you? How did you evade their machinations? So I said that uh, one of the purposes of the, the termite... The thing about uh, escorting the official to the big meeting, yeah. was that something that you generated or something that you came up with on your own? That prompt is from the love and triumph table. Okay. So, so after you generate your captain and you answer the questions that are associated with that captain... You then flip to the page with the captain tables. You choose whether you want the significant event from that captain to be love and triumph or scum and villainy. I chose love and triumph. And then there are five options, or sorry, six options in that table. And I just chose the first one, which is escorting a prominent official. And then the game says, describe them, why their gathering posed such a risk, who tried to stop you, how did you evade their machinations? So that was the one I chose, and I had it be that, you know, the old empire and the new uprising in Notorious are in conflict with each other. So I had it be that that Blorn had to escort a a prominent old empire official, and uh, the problem was that there was a new uprising blockade formed around a planet. But my ship, the Termite, is so called because... Uh, it specializes in like burrowing through blockades and going undetected. Basically, it's able to to get through where it shouldn't get through. And so, uh, I transported an old Empire ambassador through a new uprising blockade without being detected. And then, for outstanding service, Blorn was promoted and given a new ship, and the Termite was put into storage. So that concludes the first captain. Um. So the, the, the captain order events, choose, describe a captain, answer the captain questions, choose an event from the tables, which I did, then answer a ship question, which is optional. And so the ship question I answered was, what's its name and why is it called that? It's the termite because it can burrow through blockades. Then the captain ends their time with the ship. And then you choose something from the timetable here. So my first captain is done, resolved. Then I look over at the timetable, and this is where an interesting mechanic comes into play for the game, which is actually using real-world time. So you decide how long you want to have gone between captains. And I wanted the termite to be very outdated by the time it got to NAS. So... I chose the highest amount of time available in the high era in Act 1, which is a month. So it went a month between captains. And it says here, if you choose a month, rest for one minute. And that means you, the player, just sit for a minute and think about how your ship is aging. What happened? Like, where was it? Is it a hangar bay or like a warehouse covered with a tarp in the back of a, a shipyard or something? Rest for one minute and contemplate it. It's not often that uh, a game asks you to, like, literally do some rest. Um, so to resolve... <laughs> What's that? It's just one minute, though. Well, one yes. Like... But as it goes on, the amount of time gets longer with each era. Um, so resolving time. You choose how much time passes between captains. 
you rest for as long as instructed. Something that's cool is that Bucket of Bolts comes with an ambient soundtrack, so you can use that and listen to it while you rest. Then you choose from the timetables, which are similar to the captain tables. And then after you've chosen from the timetables, you choose a new captain from this act. And uh, if you've already chosen a captain, uh, then you move on to the next act. So, uh, or sorry, if you've chosen two captains, you move to the next act. So the timetables, which I said are similar to the captain tables, are shifts in currents or dust and rust. Shifts in currents, if you choose from this table, this is describing what's happening in the world around your ship. Uh, the sun turns, factions rise and fall, legendary victories fade. Or the dust and rust table is describing what happens to your ship. Metals tarnish, lights sputter out, and nature takes over. Um, so I chose uh, dust and rust. I said that, uh, oh wait, did I choose dust and rust? Let me just take a look here. Yeah, I chose dust and rust. Uh, I, my plating rusted a bit. Alabaster bulkheads fade to flax and yellow. Lights flicker and burn out. So some time passes and the termite, you know, spends a month in disrepair. And then the next captain comes along. And because I'm still in Act 1, the High Era, uh, I chose the same options apply, Long Distance Hauler, Renowned Mercenary Intelligence Agent, or a Galactic Senator. For my second captain, I chose an intelligence agent named Garm Walden, uh, loyal, ruthless, and operating undercover. The questions were, describe their cover identity and their employer's shady agenda. Would have been generating species for these guys using the tables from Notorious as well. It's actually a good idea, and maybe I should have, but I don't actually role play as any of them. So it's just sort of like I could even do it uh, anytime I want and just add in that detail. Um, so Garm, his uh, his cover identity was Regotain, a systems anal analyst. And his mission was to infiltrate and sabotage a new uprising space station, then escape undetected. The station serves as a waypoint between star systems where new uprising agents can safely stop for supplies and refuel. Sabotage will dismantle a key part of the new uprising's travel network in the area. So there's his, his mission. And then uh, where on board do they seal away their most explosive secret? Well... Encrypted in the termites' databanks are blueprints for most new uprising ships and stations, as well as travel logs for most high-ranking new uprising officials. So there's a lot of uh, intel on new uprising stuff hidden in the databanks of the termite. Um, then I went down to, uh, what was it, Scum and Villainy, I believe? Yeah, the captain vastly overestimated their bargaining skills and purchased counterfeit parts from a trader with a toothy grin. How did the faulty components fail at a critical moment? So I, I took a bit of creative liberty with that prompt, and I said that it wasn't that uh, a, an untrustworthy trader gave him counterfeit parts. Uh, I had it be that he was his identity was found out while he was on the new Uprising space station. Space station. So when he went to uh, get his ship tricked out or repaired, they intentionally sabotaged it. They intentionally gave him faulty parts. And then uh, 
at a critical moment, um, he was just about to activate uh, a short-range warp drive. Uh, oh, no, sorry, here. Uh, unfortunately, Garm underestimated the new Uprising agents on board the station. While he was stealing intelligence, they were installing faulty parts in the termite. And while the ship did escape undetected, the engine suddenly failed and was left adrift uh, between systems. Then the question from the ship questions that I answered was, uh, what system did a previous captain install but didn't get a chance to use? And that's this short-range warp drive. So his system's cut out, but he went, maybe I can blast my secret warp drive to get me to the next uh, planet. But before he was about to activate it, an old Empire shape arrived, uh, ship arrived in response to his distress beacon and picked him up. And that was the end of the era, the, the, both the era and Captain Number Two, Garm Walden. And um, in the, on the timetable, I'm trying to remember which one I picked here. Oh, yes. Uh, the, on the timetable, uh, I wanted this to last a, a long time as well. So once again, it a month went by, but in that time, uh, I chose from the shifts and currents table and that said, uh, militant faction grows rapidly into a galactic superpower, imposing their authority. Who leads this new order? How is their control enforced? Well, I just said that the new uprising... Uh, continue to grow in strength. So the new uprising uh, becomes this, this big militant faction uh, turning into a galactic superpower, since it is one of the major factions in Notorious. Then I moved into Act 2. And I can't remember if I mentioned this before, but I decided that I didn't want Nass to be the final captain, right? Because this game takes you through six captains. I didn't want Nass to be the last captain. Instead, I decided that he was going to be the captain who came in at the very end of uh, Act 2, A Time of Strife. So he was going to be captain number four. And uh, the reason I did that is so that if I want, you know, when my game with Nass ends, I can continue the story of the ship, or I can even have the termite pass to the next nomad that I generate, and then that nomad will become captain number five or captain number six. So uh, the ship can become sort of a through line that connects different aspects of my game of Notorious. So with all that said, uh, the final captain that I generated before Nass took over uh, from Act 2, A Time of Strife, was a bounty hunter. And my, op my options during a time of strife are a charming scoundrel, a bounty hunter, a rebel leader, or a hotshot racer. And again, this kind of worked out perfectly because, of course, uh, Nass, his profile is scoundrel, and his personality is, like, sarcastic, but, you know, I wanted to make him kind of a Han Solo persona. So charming scoundrel is one of the options for captain in Act 2. That's who I'm going to pick for captain number four, and it's going to be Nass. But captain number three was a bounty hunter called Val Halcyon. And yeah. Uh, but your guy is also like as a nomad is also a bounty hunter, right? It's true. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. He's also technically a bounty hunter. I could have done either. It, it really was just that I saw a charming scoundrel as one of the options. I was like, my guy's profile is a scoundrel. Okay, perfect. 
So Captain Number Three is a bounty hunter called uh, Val Halcyon, who is fearsome, precise, and bound by creed. And the prompts for Bounty Hunter describe their signature arsenal and the strict code they follow. So his signature weapons are twin vibro daggers and a blaster rifle. And then his code of honor is uh, he wants absolutely no harm to fall to children. He doesn't take any targets that are children. And the children of any of his targets, uh, part of his contract has to be, uh, has to ensure their continued care. So he's got a bit of a soft spot for kids. Then uh, the next question was, who was the most fearsome target shackled in your hold? And for this one, I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. Um, Val's most fearsome bounty was a red moon assassin who made a mis the mistake of killing the first grandson of the Targ crime boss, Zdun. And I was like, all right, so that's his, his most fearsome one. But oh, then, no, a little baby slug. Yeah, a little baby slug. It's almost like uh, the animated Clone Wars movie with, with was it Stinky the Hut? <laughs> it's like Jabba's <laughs> son or something like Did you ever see that one? No, I don't think so. It's not good, but uh, yeah, the whole thing is Obi-Wan and Anakin have to like get back a hut's, I think it's his son. It might be like his nephew or something, but a, a baby hut called Stinky. Um, uh. <laughs> Star Wars, man. Anyway, so uh, so a Red Moon assassin killed the first grandson of a Targ crime so his boss. Real, his real name is Rhoda. Rhoda. Nicknamed Padunky Muffkin. Translated P as Punky Muffin by his father and also nicknamed Stinky by Ahsoka Tano. Was a male hut and the son of Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> Um, so that's the most fearsome bounty that Val had ever had on the ship. And then I went over to the captain's table and I decided this one's going to be, because he's a bounty hunter, I'll choose from the scum and villainy table. And, uh, the first option on scum and villainy says your captain and crew returning from a planet side excursion found themselves ambushed in the docking bay. Were they debtors rival or worse? Could you escape? So I said uh, the victory of, his, of capturing this assassin was short-lived, though, because the Red Moon Alliance ambushed Val as soon as he landed to meet his client. And in the scuffle, uh, Val was killed and the assassin was freed. And then uh, I got to do some time passage. And for this one, I picked a Decade. A decade went by. Rest for three minutes and then choose once on dust and rust or shifts and currents. And uh, so the termite was retrieved by scrappers and shoved to the back of a storage bay on Oseron where it sat unattended for a decade, its plating growing rust, its lights burning out, its seats rotting, until it was purchased on the cheap and ordered to be brought up to working order by the Nomads Guild. Despite still running on... Oh, yeah, and uh, one of the, the questions about the ship uh, that I answered here was... Um, where is it here? Super modification. I'm trying to... I can't find the question, but uh, it asked me to uh, describe how one of the traits applied. So I said, you know, one of its traits is outdated... Why is it outdated? And I had it be that it runs on an outdated, like a defunct fuel source. 
It runs on something I just called Crimin radiation. It needs these Crimin packs. Uh, most ships use this new type of fusion drive, but it's still operating on this old defunct Crimin radiation drive. So it makes it slightly more likely to explode if it's damaged in space, uh, but it's exactly what the guild needs for their member in need of transportation, the new captain of the termite, Nask Rask, Nomad. So that was the, that's the story of the termites so far. But like I said, it's going to continue after NASA's is done with it. Um, and that's, that's really how uh, Bucket of Bolts works, is just playing around with that game cycle. There's no dice rolling. It's all just prompts, questions, a much more creative writing exercise than Notorious is. And uh, looking ahead at Act 3, uh, which is the descent where the ship is really becoming an old hunk of junk. Uh, potential captains are a heartbroken veteran, a space sweeper, a pirate gang, or a tour operator. And the amount of time that you can rest for in this final act are a month, a year, a decade, decades, a century, or even centuries. So you could have this ship be like, like, a, like an ancient relic by the time the final captain uh, gets into the pilot seat. How so, how long do you rest in real time if it's relative to that? Uh, for like centuries. Centuries is the the biggest unit of time that you rest, and if your ship is resting for centuries, you rest for six minutes. But it does say that while you're resting for six minutes, you choose up to three uh, items from the dust and rest or shifts and currents table because a lot happens in centuries. So, you know. Uh, factions can rise and fall different, you know, you, your ship can become infested with small burrowing creatures, uh, all sorts of things can happen. So there is like a bit of structure here to how the game flows, but I'll, so, I'll I will say this. I think this actually works best as a supplement to Notorious playing this on its own is, or, or, you know, any given game, different games could, the, any spacefaring game could probably use this to add in some plot elements to a spaceship, but I feel like this doesn't really feel like a self-contained game to me. Yeah, it's definitely the main thought that I've had on all this is just like, I would appreciate this kind of prompt-based tool, uh, particularly for the prompts for something that I was trying to create. Like if I was trying to do yeah, like a role-playing game set on a spaceship, and I wanted to generate some character for that spaceship, then I could use this. But I'd like to have something like this similarly for, like, something for creating, like, World of Darkness settings or things like that. Like, well, there's, which uh, there sort this of is. Bucket of Bolts is, is spun off of another game by this same author uh, called Artifact, and it's like exactly the same premise except instead of a spaceship you're creating the history of a magic artifact or weapon and like i i immediately think of like the one ring right where you can create you you talk about what the artifact can do and then you detail the history of everybody who's ever had that artifact in their possession and you know what befell them as a result of it there's actually a a great um like uh kind of a third-party supplement that someone created 
that uh, is going to be my friend Spencer's going to be using it in his game. Um, but uh, there is uh, right. It's a thing called uh, ancestral weapons that someone uh, made for five E and it basically lets you create like a uh, an item with a backstory that then like levels up with you and gains special powers it's sort of like you get in addition to leveling up your character you're also like improving your ancestral weapon and like customizing that okay, that yeah. would be a really cool place to use artifact um but yeah uh i guess my question about my one question about this is like with the resting in real time, when are you supposed to do the resting? Are you supposed to rest and then generate the things from the table? Like, like how exactly does that work? I so, assume you've done it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so when were you taking the one minute rests, I guess. So the, the gameplay cycle goes that you, you do the captain stuff. Choose and describe your captain. Answer the questions about your captain. Choose an event from the captain tables. You have the option of answering a ship question. Then the captain ends the, their time with the ship, and you move over to the time section. And then you choose then how much time passes between captains, and the different time options have different things under, underneath them. So like in Act 2... If you choose, and it, not all of them say choose on the dust and rust or shifts and currents tables. So in Act 2, if you rest for a day, you just sit there for 20 seconds and just take a moment to, to think about what happens to your ship. But if you choose a year, you rest for two minutes, and then you choose once on the time tables, dust and rust, or shifts and currents. So that's so when it, it, that's when it before, occurs. It's before the, the timetable, basically. Yes, it's before you okay. pick anything from the timetable, and then after you've picked from the tables as instructed, then you choose the next captain, and you continue the, the cycle again. I guess it's kind of like, like in the, the loop of the game where you're picking a captain, fleshing out the details, choosing events from the captain table, answering a ship question. The last part of that gameplay loop is picking how long you rest, you yourself the player, resting for the instructed period of time then you choose from the tables and then you start that over again i think it's pretty neat but i've like i said i don't feel like this quite stands on its own i think there's a lot of value in this as part of a bigger game like even something like D, &D uh if i picked the the artifact version of this with the magic artifacts That'd be pretty fun because say a player, you know, gains some new cool magic artifact, especially one that I just like randomly generated on the fly. Then between sessions, I might play artifact on my own to give it more of a history and give it a bit more weight so that when they eventually find out more about this thing they picked up, I've got it all at the ready and I can, I can drip feed those details. And similarly, like if I was running a game, you know, if I was running like uh, the verse, my Firefly campaign, 
Uh, if I had a copy of Bucket of Bolts at the time, I would probably have generated a big history for their ship so that when they're exploring their ship, if they find, you know, a secret compartment or something, then I've got this whole backstory already, you know, what's in the secret compartment? Oh my god, it's this thing that the bounty hunter in Act 2 uh, squirreled away secretly uh, that nobody knows about. Could have rolled for the infestation that, uh, could, could have generated the infestation that happened. That's right. Um, and something else I'll say about this is that uh, looking at the document, I'm noticing that the tables are all in values of four or six. Like it gives you four options for captains and then it gives you six op options for time to rest. And then in the time and captain tables, the shifts, currents, dust, rust, scum and villainy, love and triumph, each of those tables has six options. So if you wanted to, to make it more of a dice rolling game, you could absolutely use a D4 and then D6s to choose each of those things. There is, there is the option for, for a bit of random generation in here. Yeah, I was thinking that as you read the options. So yeah, um, I don't, I'm not as, not as in love with Bucket of Bolts as I am with Notorious, but I do think that they pair really well together, and, uh, and like, I like that I've got, you know, the Termite now, I, the, the NASA's ship has a history behind it, and then uh, I set myself up so that after NASA is done, whether he gets his target and gets a promotion or, or dies or moves on, the the ship can live on the termite can continue for a couple more captains hell yeah anything else no i think that's everything for this time but sounds like we're going to talk about more notorious next time around yeah i think so um so until then if you want to get in touch with us uh see when we post new episodes or follow us check us out on facebook comparing campaign on facebook or if you want to see our show notes and supplemental materials, check us out on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Um, yeah. Uh, who's got a bucket of bolts? Not me. Uh, uh, choose your captain and uh, what happens to your ship? Get, level up, get that ship. Okay. <laughs>